and we are live. Welcome everyone to the 26th live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. Today we deal with everyone's favorite subject, Indian history. So we have lots of questions to get through and let's get right into it with question one. So question one is by Aryan. Any comments on the battle of Khayadara near present-day Mount Abu, southern Rajasthan, where Mohammed Ghori was defeated by a lady warrior between, before the Battle of Tarain. So what you're referring to is the Battle of Kasaharada, which happened in the late 12th century. I think it was 1170, between 1170 and 1180 AD. So the protagonists, the antagonist was Muizuddin Muhammad Ghori, Muhammad Ghori, the invader from Afghanistan, the convert from Afghanistan. And the Indian defender was Rani Naiki Devi, who was the mother of Mulraja II, the, the second king of the uh, Mulraja II of the Solanki dynasty in Gujarat and Rajasthan, in the ancient region of Rajputana. So this Ghori guy was in, uh, he had his intention was to uh, to invade India and to capture the Somnath Temple because the Somnath Temple was one of the richest temples in the in the in the entire country in the entire world, and it was very famous. So he intended to loot this temple, destroy it, and take away the wealth. So at this time, you had the Solanki or Chalukya dynasty, the Northern Chalukya dynasty, which is actually the Solanki dynasty. And their king, Mulraja II, was a child at the time. So his mother was in charge of the governance and defense of the kingdom. So her name was Naiki Devi. And she had to go and face this invader, this, this evil terrorist, so to say, Muhammad Ghori. And there was this battle between present-day Gujarat and Rajasthan, uh, near, like you say, Mount Abu. And the Rajputs, the, the Indians, defeated. They inflicted a disastrous defeat on the army of Muhammad Ghori. And he managed to go back safely all the way to Afghanistan. So yes, this was a great victory for India. This was a great victory for, for the Rajput kingdom. But they let him get away. So yes, this was um, Rani Naiki Devi did a great thing. She was a great uh, warrior queen. It is a great, a great achievement for her. It shows, it goes on to show that Indians have always treated women with the utmost respect. They have elevated, elevated women to the highest of positions in society. And women were, were warriors when it, when it was needed to be. She was at the head of her army. She was the commander in chief of her army in battle, not just in an armchair, right? So she was an actual warrior queen. And she not only went to war, but she defeated this this monster, Mohammed Ghori. My issue is that she did, she allowed him to get away with it. She allowed him to escape with his life. And you would see this again in 1191, when Prithviraj Chauhan again defeated Mohammed Ghori, but allowed him to get away with his life and escape. And he was able to return and then do what he did in India. Right? So this was the beginning of the, uh, of the dark ages of India. The successful invasion of Muhammad Ghori in, in the battle of Tarain, in which he defeated, in the second battle of Tarain, in which he was able to defeat Prithviraj Chauhan. So he was allowed to get away by, by Rani Naiki Devi. Then 20, 15, 17 years later, he was allowed to get away by Prithviraj Chauhan. And eventually, after suffering so many defeats at the hands of the Rajputs, he learned their strategies and tactics, and he was 
finally able to defeat them and take over India and subjugate it and brutalize it. So this is one of the big lessons of history. We Indians enjoy this. Yes, our queen defeated the guy. Our king Prithvira defeated the guy. But what happened in the end? How stupid were they? How stupid were these great, brave, valorous Rajputs who allowed the, the enemy of the nation to get away repeatedly? This is stupidity of the highest kind. And please do not, you must not construe this as anti-Rajput sentiment. It is not anti-Rajput sentiment. I am speaking as an Indian. So they allowed this guy, this terrorist, this monster to get away repeatedly after defeating him. And that's why he was finally able to subjugate India. And that's how India fell into the dark ages from which it has not yet emerged. So yes, Maharani Naiki Devi did defeat the monster Mohammed Ghori. And yet it was, it was a pointless defeat. He did come back. He did destroy Somnath. He did subjugate India. And he did plunge India into darkness, which is still continuing, FYI. So that's the story. Mohan asks, many people say that India has always been a non-violent civilization. They fought wars only when someone attacked them. So how did India capture such big landmass from Afghanistan in the north and also Southeast Asia? Well, if you watch my previous videos, I have, I have been uploading for the past month almost short clips of my live telecasts in which in one of these I have explained in detail that this idea that India is a non-violent, non expansionist civilization it's a myth india has invaded various countries over the over the past centuries and millennia lots of times india indian emperors have created enormous kingdoms that encompassed uh, present day xinjiang present day central asia uh, and many other countries uh, of present day asia and also indians conquered uh, southeast asia all the way to the philippines and india conquered China and Japan and the rest of Asia culturally without ever sending a soldier across as well. So this idea that India has been a non-expansionist civilization is a complete myth. Indians were famous for their military prowess, for their strategic and tactical nows. And so this, this idea is a complete myth, first of all. That's, that's point number one. Secondly, you're asking uh, how did India capture such a big landmass from Afghanistan. It's like asking, how did India capture Uttar Pradesh? Or how did India capture Tamil Nadu? Or how did India capture Gujarat? Afghanistan has always been a part of India. Afghanistan historically is India. It is the northern part of India. It is Gandhar. In the Mahabharat times, you had many protagonists from many ma major uh, participants in, this, in these events who came from Afghanistan. You had Shakuni and you had his sister Gandhari. So these were royalty from Gandhar, weren't they? So Afghanistan is, today it is a, a separate country because of, uh, because of the uh, baggage of history, because of the events that took place in the past 1000 years, the Turkic invasions, etc. But historically, Afghanistan has always been a part of India. The Afghan people are ethnically and genetically Indian. I mean the Pashtuns and culturally too, before their conversion to a foreign religion. And therefore, India has never captured a landmass from Afghanistan. Afghanistan was always part of India. Okay, now how did India capture Southeast Asia? Well, it's a long, long process that goes back several thousand years. 
Indi- there is in- an Indian footprint in Australia that dates back four and a half or, or almost 5,000 years. So Indians were traveling to very far off places for at least 5,000 years or maybe even before that. And Southeast Asia is much closer than that. We know of many Indian uh, influences that date back at least 3,000 years in, in Southeast Asia. And the military expansion happened during mostly during the uh, time, time period of the Chola dynasty wherein there were numerous military expansions, naval expansions by the Chola kings and emperors into Southeast Asia. They conquered the entirety of the region all the way to the Philippines. So once again, to recap this idea that India has never uh, invaded and conquered other lands, this is a complete myth. It is a fabrication. I think some some Indians are fond of saying, oh, no, no, we are very non-violent. We are very gentle people. We have never invaded another country for 2000 years. These people are deluded. They need to get an education. They need to get a sense of the real history. This claim is not consistent with the facts. I don't blame them for having this this idea it's it's the fault of our education system that gives us all the well all the all the wrong ideas about ourselves and our country and our past and our heritage and our ancestors and that's the reason why i am doing these q and a sessions so that i can well debunk some of these myths so i hope this answers your question mohan good question could you please tell us more about the pandyas cholas and other dynasties who spread Hinduism and Indian culture throughout Southeast Asia? That is a great question. So I have repeatedly spoken about the Cholas. Now let me introduce a different dynasty because there are other dynasties as well. For example, before the Cholas, it was the the region of Kalinga, which is present-day Orissa mostly, which actually had a great deal of influence in Southeast Asia. So, for example, in Asia, and and uh, so, f- for example, in Orissa, they, Orissa has a great has a very ancient maritime history, a maritime culture that dates back almost three thousand years before today, right? So you have you must have heard of the Bali Yatra, right? Bali Yatra, which is uh, uh, celebrated every year in Orissa, which uh, commemorates the the uh, maritime trade of the of the people of Kalinga, the ancient maritime trade of the people of Kalinga in the in the in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia, specifically Bali, because it is named by it is mentioned by name Bali Yatra. So what happened was that you had these maritime merchant mariners from Kalinga who were called the Sadabas, and they would go on these long voyages on ships called boitas. And they have been doing this for th- almost 3,000 years. It's a very ancient tradition in Orissa, in Kalinga, right? So even today you have a festival in Orissa which is called Boita Bandana, which marks the day that these merchants, these traders would leave for Southeast Asia. It is still commemorated today. And nobody in India knows about this because no, none of our history textbooks will mention this, right? So Kalinga had a great, great maritime uh, uh, tradition and it has great, uh, very ancient ties with Southeast Asia. And you can see the influences even today. There are there are these uh, classical dances in Southeast Asia, especially Cambodia, Bali, etc., which have a great deal of influence from Orissi dance. Orissi dance, right? 
Odyssey is one of India's major classical dances. In my opinion, it is the most graceful of all of India's classical dances. So you see the influence of the Odyssey style of classical dance across Southeast Asia, especially places like Cambodia, etc. So that's very interesting. So that demonstrates the ancient cultural ties between Kalinga and Southeast Asia. So before the Cholas, it was the, it was the people of Kalinga who started these contacts. And it may go back even further, even before that. And one of the most important examples of this is that the founder of the Funan kingdom in present-day Cambodia was a person from Kalinga, Kondinya I. He was the founder of the Funan kingdom in Cambodia. So this Funan kingdom was in present-day Cambodia and parts of Yunnan, etc. He married a local uh, a local princess who became his queen, Queen Soma. And his capital was Vyadapura in present-day Cambodia. And he is the founder of the Funan kingdom. So this ancient history of, Oling, of Orissa, of Kalinga, went on until the 16th century. Just 400-500 years ago, it finally declined with the decline of the Gajapati Empire of Orissa. The Gajapati Empire encompassed present-day Orissa, parts of present-day Bengal, most of Andhra Pradesh and parts of Tamil Nadu as well. So, you know, that's the story of, of Orissa. And, and the initial Indian influences that we know of in Southeast Asia. So this is the beginning of the contacts and the beginning of the genetic influx of Indian genes into Southeast Asia and the influx of Indian culture into Southeast Asia because this was a peaceful uh, a peaceful interchange and exchange and, and uh, basically a relationship, at least during the Kalinga times. It was only during the Chola times that the military conquests of Southeast Asia happened, at least that we know of. So that's uh, in brief the story of the uh, of how Indian culture and Indian religious traditions and Indian genetics made their way across Southeast Asia. It starts with Kalinga. So we keep on talking about the Cholas. Now people know about the Cholas, that the Cholas had this vast empire, maritime empire. But one must not forget the, the seminal contribution, the pivotal contribution of Kalinga in actually starting this process. So that is something we need to remember. It's it's very important and, and very significant. Okay, despite being a coastal territory and having a rich tradition and culture, why is Odisha so poor? Was it a, a result of colonialist policies that completely destroyed it or some other event in history? Everything that has gone wrong in India in the past 1000 years is the consequence of foreign occupation and foreign colonialism. It starts with the Turkic invasions of India, which uh, destroyed, which, which basically began the genocide of India, in which at least 500 million people died over five, six centuries. Okay. It, it, it uh, resulted in the destruction of incredible amounts of India's architectural and religious and cultural and traditional heritage. All, almost all of the temples in northern, northern India and western India have been wiped out, destroyed. They're all in ruins today. Much of South, East, South of India was also affected, at least, especially in more recent times. right? And then you had the British who came in, who basically did an even more thorough job of destroying India. They extracted everything that was of value out of India and transferred it into their GDP, right? 
and they impoverished India. They uh, stole everyone's land by by the Rajatwari Act. They reduced the entire population of India to subsistence farming and destitution. They destroyed India's culture, India's heritage, India's writing systems, India's education system, everything. And they imposed this divide and rule policy that we are still implementing today. And our government and our people and our education system, everything is still completely colonized. If I don't speak in English, half my viewers will leave because they don't understand Hindi, right? So that is the situation we are in today. So everything that we are suffering from today in India is a consequence of 1000 years of humiliation. The Chinese talk about a century of humiliation, right? Well, India has undergone a a millennium of humiliation. We must not forget this. And the the ones who are enjoying the benefits of our, of our wealth must be held to account when India rises. All right. So the point is this: that see, it it does not it did not only affect Odisha. It affected the whole of India. But yes, today Odisha is comparatively poorer than many of the states, such as Gujarat, for example, which benefited from the policies of Narendra Modi for a decade. And Gujarat was able to uh, rise very rapidly because of the right policies. And if you look at India, the peninsular part of India, the western portion of India is overall more developed. The eastern portion, including Kalinga, etc., Orissa, Bengal, is underdeveloped. It's because of various local governments and various central policies. So the local government in Bengal has been the communist government which basically reduced uh, Bengal to, to, to poverty, right? There was a povertarian agenda, an agenda of, of no development, zero development, etc. And similarly in Orissa also, I do not blame the, the current government for impoverishing Orissa, but they have not been that proactive in developing the state. Orissa is rich in everything. It has an incredible culture, a very, very rich and and uh, glorious history it has wonderful natural resources it has the be- most beautiful beaches you know and it has so much uh, traditions and culture the jagannath festival etc i mean that's just one example you have the konark sun temple that i haven't visited in more than 40 years etc so my point is that orissa has everything that a state could ask for for it to become extremely prosperous so i blame see what happened before independence it is all because of the colonizers and occupiers of India. They will be held to account someday, soon. But after independence, it is the socialist policies of the Nehruvian regime and the local state governments that are responsible for every state that is in, in, a, in a bad condition today. And Orissa is definitely one of those. I think if you change the policies of the government in, in Orissa, especially when it comes to tourism and culture, Orissa could benefit like anything in the next 10 years. If you just change some policies, if you could would turn Odisha into a, a tourism hub and a culture hub, you would have you would get millions of tourists every year, and they would inject millions or billions of dollars of cash into the local economy. That itself could give you a big spurt in the in the growth. It would uh, it would kickstart so many small industries and various other uh, complete ecosystem of arts, culture, industries, and all that catered towards tourism. That's just one example of how Orissa can, can be developed. And there are so many other ways. There is so much in Orissa. So the thing is, it's all, first of all, because of thousand years of humiliation and colonialism. And secondly, because of the socialist and povertarian policies post-independence of the central governments and also the state government. So that is why Orissa is 
so poor today in and in such such in the, in the shape it is in today okay so this gentleman or lady whoever it is asks is xerxes a sanskrit name okay did i ever say that xerxes is a sanskrit name were you paying attention to what i was saying sir did you pay attention i have never said that xerxes is a sanskrit name it's like asking is rama setu is is adam's bridge a sanskrit name is mount everest a sanskrit name no adam's bridge is what the foreigners called rama setu rama setu is a sanskrit name adam's bridge is not and mount everest is what the foreigners called sagarmatha sagarmatha is a sanskrit name not mount everest similarly i have never said that xerxes is a sanskrit name xerxes is the name the greeks gave to the persian emperor emperor kshayarsha is a sanskrit name xerxes is the greek form of that name it is a greek word it is not a persian word let me let me put it on the screen okay xerxes is a greek is is the is the way the greek mangled this word this name the actual name of the persian emperor was kshayarsha which is a purely sanskrit name and he, that is not the only persian emperor with a sanskrit name all the emperors of the hakshamanish dynasty the achaemenid dynasty had sanskrit names let me give you some examples so there is this emperor that you if you look at wikipedia you will say they they call him artaxerxes right artaxerxes well his actual name was artakshatra artakshatra they call him artaxerxes there was this emperor they call aryaramnis his name was aryaramna then you have cyrus the great his actual name was kurush and then the founder of the achaemenid dynasty achaemenes his name was hakshamanish so as you can see every persian emperor of old persia of the achaemenid dynasty of the hakshamanish dynasty had sanskrit names pure sanskrit names so i have never said please please note this i have not said that xerxes is a sanskrit name i have said that kshayarsha is a sanskrit name i hope you understand this time so please don't ask me tomorrow whether cyrus is a sanskrit name <laughs> okay i hope that makes my point clear next ruchir asks why do caribbean or west indies cricket players or people in general have indian names is this an inclination of people residing in these lands for centuries the people in the caribbean who have indian names are of indian origin so what happened was that a century or more ago the british forcibly took people from india special spe- uh, mostly from uh, northern india from bihar from uttar pradesh and some other places in india as well maybe some from, some from tamil nadu also they were taken as indentured laborers which is another word for slaves okay so the british practiced slavery in various forms they gave it different various names to say to claim that to be able to claim that it is not slavery they called it indentured servitude or indentured laborers or whatever these were slaves these people were taken hundreds of thousands even millions of them were taken to various places the caribbean region the um, uh, guyana the west indies region the caribbean region south africa mauritius etc these people were 
settled there, made to work as slaves, and their descendants still live there today. And they try to preserve their culture in some way or the other. And that is why they have Indian names. And you have so many examples of these from the West Indies cricket team. Shiv Narayan Chandrapal, Ram Naresh Sarwan, uh, Alvin Kalicharan, and, and so many more, right? Dinesh Ramdin, uh, Sunny Ramdin, many, many more. I don't remember them all. So you have all these people in the Caribbean region, including Guyana, uh, British Guyana, even French Guyana, I'm sure, and various other islands in this archipelago who are of Indian origin. So they have been living there for over a century, maybe a couple of centuries. I don't remember the exact time. It was most likely sometime in the 19th century that these people were forcibly taken there to work as slaves. And they underwent great, great sufferings. It was a terrible, terrible life for them. But today, their descendants are reasonably, are doing reasonably better today. Uh, many, many luminaries have emerged from this. For example, the great writer V.S. Naipaul, Nobel Prize winner. He tried to reconnect with India and the India he saw disgusted him because it was, it was such an impoverished country in such a pitiable state. So it repulsed him and he, he wrote a great, great deal about India how India has been destroyed by the British. So that's one example. There are many others. So, so it is all a consequence of, of British colonialism. They forcibly uh, transplanted people to various parts of the world to work as slaves. So that is the legacy of the evil British Empire. Next question. Please shed some light on the Karkota dynasty and why does a king like Lalit Aditya, why is such a king missing from our history? Well, this king is not missing from our history, sir. He has been wiped out or whitewashed out of our history. So the Karkota dynasty that you speak about, it was a Kashmiri dynasty. It was, it's, it's, uh, it emerged out of Kashmir. It was culturally Kashmiri. Its uh, heartland was Kashmir. This dynasty was in power between the 7th and the 9th centuries CE for about, about two, two and a half centuries approximately. And their greatest king was the great Lalitaditya Muktapida, who lived, who, who was the king of this region in the middle of the 8th century. Okay. And he has been written about, so his account is written in the in a chronicle of kings called the Raja Tarangini, whose author is the Kashmiri scholar Kalhana, who lived in the 12th, 12th century. So Lalitaditya Muktapira, according to this account, was one of the greatest kings of all time of India. He conquered much of the entirety of India. He unified India under one political dispensation, which was, which was under his reign. And then he went ahead and conquered Afghanistan and much of Central Asia. So that is the enormity of the empire that this one emperor created out of the force of his will and, and the because of his conquests. So in just a few decades, he conquered this enormous landmass. Now, Western scholars and Indian Marxist scholars, they discount his foreign conquests and he and they claim that he only conquered parts of India because the other regions that, uh, that he is said to have conquered in this ancient account, uh, that is not to be believed apparently. So that is how these people try and persuade you all that India has never conquered any lands outside of India. This is a pure distortion of history. Okay. 
So, so the fact is that his empire stretched from the Caspian Sea all the way to Bangladesh and beyond in the east and from Afghanistan and parts of Xinjiang in the north all the way to, the, to most parts of southern India. That's how large Lalitaditya Muktapida's empire was. He is the man who constructed the great, so the great Martan, the Sun Temple, which has been destroyed by terrorists today. Uh, so that is the, the significance of this great dynasty and especially this great king. This dynasty is so relevant and so significant because of the actions and the life and career of the great emperor Lalitaditya Muktapida. So he is one of the greatest emperors of India. And yet you won't find any references to him in your school or college or university textbooks. Nothing significant. I doubt if there's any, even a sentence about him anywhere. So that's the kind of history we have been taught for, for decades. Okay, Raghavan asks, please tell us about the relationship between Sri Lanka and Saurashtra. I see some names common like Chudasama, etc. So Saurashtra is the peninsular region of India, uh, of, of Gujarat. If Gujarat looks like a face, then Saurashtra is the jaw of Gujarat, right? So that is Saurashtra. So what is the relationship between uh, Saurashtra and, and Sri Lanka? Is there a relationship? So to understand whether there's a relationship or, or not, we have to look back at the foundational story of Sri Lanka. How was Sri, Sri Lanka founded? So the founding story is that the founder of the Sinhalese dynasty and the Sinhalese people, the ancestor of the Sinhalese people is a king called Vijay. He is the person who founded Sri Lanka or the Sinhalese phase of uh, Sri Lanka's history. And this is in the 6th century BCE. So it is said that this prince, uh, he lived either in Vanga Pradesh, which is Bengal today, most likely Singur, or he was from Kalinga, Singapore, or he was from Saurashtra, Sihor a place called Sihor in Saurashtra. These are the three most likely candidates. And then we have to uh, examine the story further to, to see which of these places is more likely. So it is said that he was a very notorious, uh, he was very, he had a band of 700 followers who were very violent and they would uh, indulge in various, uh, various violent activities and all, and all. So his father or stepfather ordered him to be exiled out of the kingdom. So he put Prince Vijay and all of his followers on a couple of ships and he uh, and he directed them to go, go off somewhere far away into exile. So it is said that from the, the kingdom, this uh, these ships, they first stopped at a place called Suparaka. Suparaka is most likely Sopara in uh, western Maharashtra. Sopara is present day, is currently in, in metropolitan Mumbai. Right? This ancient place called Sopara, which was, which was once called Suparaka. So if the Suparaka of this story is the same as Sopara of Maharashtra, then it is most likely that Prince Vijay originated in Saurashtra. Right? And from there they went on to Sri Lanka. And it is said that he landed in Sri Lanka with his, uh, with his followers on the same day that Gautam Buddha died in northern India. So that would place it at the very end of the 6th century BCE, in the very beginning of the 5th century BCE. So that is the story. So we are not very sure yet, but the circumstantial and literary written evidence that we have 
seems to indicate that Saurashtra could be the place of origin of the Sinhalese people. Because we know that the Sinhalese people are what you would classify as Indo-Aryan people. They speak a language that is clo- which is closest to present-day Marathi, actually. It's, uh, it is classified as an Indo-Aryan language, right? So, so this is the story behind the founding of the, of the Sinhalese uh, dynasty and the people in Sri Lanka. And it seems that it, it could have originated from, from uh, Saurashtra. So that's a story. It's an interesting story. I think there should be more research into this because it is still not clear what really happened. Kunal asks, could you please tell us about Edwina Mountbatten, her motive and her relationship with our great selected Prime Minister Sri Nehru and also with Jinnah? Yeah, that's a good good question. So we know that the that Edwina Mountbatten, the 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 wife of the first of the of the viceroy, Lord Mountbatten, we know that she had a an affair with our great Prime Minister Sri Nehruji. So, and people wonder why did this guy allow his wife to have to continue with an affair with uh, with Mr. Nehru? So there is a revelation that were, that has been made public recently, recently like in the past decade or two. There was a 1944 FBI file about Lord Mountbatten, in which it was disclosed that Lord Mountbatten was a homosexual with a perversion for little boys. So that's the kind of criminal and perverted activities that Mr. Mountbatten was uh, fond of. That was his inclination. I have nothing against homosexuality, but the other thing is it's criminal, isn't it? So that is that is the kind of inclinations he had. And therefore, most likely this marriage may have been a fake marriage, a lavender marriage of kind of sorts. And so I, I that, that, that's why it's not really surprising then in the light of this revelation that he had nothing against this uh, relationship that his wife had with uh, Mr. Nero. And it was politically advantageous for the British that uh, Edwina was carrying on this affair Mr. with Mr. Nehru. It gave them a great deal of leverage over Mr. Nehru and it made Mr. Nehru very am- amenable to British demands and uh, British uh, the British agenda of partitioning India and, and continuing to have a say in the internal affairs of India after India's apparent independence. So that is the story. It is well known that there was indeed an affair. What kind of affair it was, I have no interest in. Okay, I have no interest in the personal lives of people. But since this matter affects history and affect, and it affected the geopolitical interests of India, that's why I'm talking about this. So I have no interest in whether it was a physical or non-physical relationship. It's immaterial. What is known is that there was a relationship. Even Lady, this uh, Edwina Mountbatten's daughter or granddaughter has acknowledged the fact that there was a relationship between these two people, an affair. And this was basically used as leverage by the British. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book to honey trap somebody or to have some sort of leverage of this kind with a king or a prime minister or a, or, the, or a head of state of some country. And you have seen it more recently as well in India, unfortunately. So that is the kind of thing that was done. And Mr. Nehru, well, Mr. Nehru was no great statesman. He was no world leader. He was no national leader. He was appointed. He was selected by the British via Mr. Gandhi 
as the Prime Minister of India. He did not contest an election until the 1950s, right? In 1947, he was selected as the Prime Minister of India. So this guy basically had, um, this gentleman, the great illustrious Shri Nehruji, had very little actual leadership experience. He had very little, he he had uh, somewhat diminished leadership capabilities compared to other great luminaries. So, so that is the thing. So he was very pliable. He could be manipulated easily via this particular affair. And he was, of course, an Anglophile. He was a Fabian socialist, etc. So he was the best pick for the British to, to be installed as the puppet Prime Minister of India. So that's what happened. And I think this lady died in 1959 or 1960, thereabouts. So when she died, Mr. Nehru sent a couple of ships, at least one ship of the Indian Navy, to give tribute to her because I think she was buried at sea or something or or maybe not I don't know but he sent an Indian at least one Indian naval ship to pay tribute to her after she died I, I, I wonder what was the national interest in doing that you know because the Indian naval ships are supposed to safeguard the coastal security and, and they are supposed to further the national interest of the country at sea so how did sending this ship for her funeral advance India's national interest, I wonder. So that's the kind of prime minister we had, the illustrious Shri Nehruji. So this is an interesting chapter of that part of our unfortunate history. Abhinav asks, why Gandhiji's idea to dissolve the Indian National Congress and create a social organization called Lok Sivak Sangh did not become a reality? Many were prominent leaders of the Indian National Congress behind this. Could you please explain? So Mr. Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, did express uh, did express the desire to, he did express the, his opinion that the Indian National Congress should be dissolved and some other kind of organization should be set up to, to govern the country. He did express that desire. And unfortunately, he died before he could uh, put anything in motion. So that's why this did not happen. And of course, in the matter of politics, when some people gain from from a certain system, it becomes, they get entrenched into it and they become desirous of not allowing any change to happen because they benefit from the system. So they benefited from the prime position that the Indian National Congress got after independence. It became the ruling party. So why would they ever allow allow it to get dissolved? They would never allow that. They would have fought that and opposed that tooth and nail. And even Mr. Nehru would never have allowed this to happen because he gained so much from the way things played out. He became the prime minister. He became one of the great luminaries of the non-aligned movement. He fancied himself a global statesman. He, He went to the White House. He went to the Kremlin. I mean, come on. Would he allow all the source of his power and his all these perks to disappear? Absolutely not. So these are the reasons why this never happened. Okay, Harshit asks, if hypothetically speaking, Mr. Mohandas Gandhi became the Prime Minister of India after 1947, what would India be like in that period? Would Mohandas Gandhi have adopted violence, violent means if someone would have attacked India in the 1950s? See, Mohandas Gandhi was against having an army. Mr. Nehru was also against having an army. He wanted to to disband the army. So Mr. Gandhi, see, here's what Mr. Gandhi wanted for India. Mr. Gandhi did not believe in 
democracy. FYI, Mr. Gandhi, as you know, he opposed the democratic election of Sardar Patel to the Prime Ministership of India. He arm-twisted and forced the Congress Party to instead select Mr. Nehru. So he sabotaged the democratic process, right? That is a prime example of that. And Mr. Gandhi did not ever believe in democracy. So the, the kind of system that Mr. Gandhi wanted for India after independence was is called Gandhian trusteeship. So according to Mr. Gandhi, what he wanted was that wealthy people should be trustees of trusts that looked after the welfare of the people of India who should remain in, po in poverty. So he did not want industrialization in India. He did not want any big industries. He wanted Indians to spin khadi every day, earn a few pesas, and just have enough money to be able to eat two meals a day. That is Mr. Gandhi's vision for India. That was Mr. Gandhi's vision for India. He was a povertarian and he was not against wealth. He wanted the industrialists and the wealthy people to be the trustees. So they should have all the wealth. They should retain all the wealth. You can look this up online. I'm not making this up. The Gandhian trusteeship model, it's available everywhere. It's part of the so-called Gandhian philosophy. Okay. So he wanted all the industrialists and rich people to remain rich, but they should donate their money, a significant portion of the money, to look after the welfare of India's people who should remain in poverty. And of course, all these wealthy people should be controlled by Mr. Gandhi, which is how he was able to afford the lifestyle that he that he lived during India's so-called freedom struggle. You know what, what Sarojini Naidu said about Gandhi, right? She said that it costs us a fortune to keep Mr. Gandhi in poverty. So what Mr. Gandhi would do is he would travel everywhere in the country by train in the third class compartment. But he would have the whole compartment emptied. He would be the only person in the third class compartment. And there would be another compartment which would be reserved for his attendants, his secretaries, his servants, his other people, his ent entire entourage. That would also be third class, but it would be reserved only for them. So every time Mr. Gandhi went anywhere, there would be two or three compartments reserved only for him. But he would travel in third class. So the newspapers and everybody, the media, the press would say that Mr. Gandhi always travels third class. They would not mention the circumstances in which he traveled third class. So all this cost a great deal of money. And that's why Sarojini Naidu said, she has stated this, that it costs us a fortune to keep Mr. Gandhi in poverty. Right? And how... Who funded all this? Who funded all of Mr. Gandhi's travels? Who funded everything Mr. Gandhi did? Who funded Mr. Gandhi's stay in South Africa for so many years in great luxury, FYI? And especially after he came back to India, who funded all his activities? It was all funded by various industrialists. Mr. Gandhi was basically, he controlled all the unions. So if any industrialist would refuse him money, or refuse to fund the freedom struggle, which is a better way of putting it, then his union, his laborers, workers would go on strike and his entire business would come to a halt. So please understand what power means. Mr. Gandhi understood power and he fooled the entire country and the media of the time. All whitewashed what he was doing. Isn't it eerily reminiscent of what's happening today? So that is Mr. Gandhi. So if he, see, Mr. Gandhi never wanted to become prime minister. He believed in the trusteeship model, which means, which means leadership, not leadership, leadership, it means rule by proxy. You appoint a prime minister 
but he, the prime minister will be controlled by you because you actually have all the power. You are the real source of power. You can dismiss a prime minister anytime you want. So if he had not been assassinated, he would have continued to rule India in that manner via Mr. Nehru or via somebody else. That is his trusteeship model. Unfortunately, India has ad- adopted this model today. Today you have chief ministers who are appointed by somewhere else. Isn't it? You have these political parties in which somebody has all the power, but they appoint somebody else as a chief minister. And the chief minister is merely a figurehead or a puppet. And you have even seen that with the prime minister of India. So this is all the legacy of Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. So that's the deal. Would he have adopted violence if somebody attacked India? No, he would have given out more pieces of India's land. Oh, come Pakistan, take take the rest of Kashmir, take some part of Punjab as well. If China wanted some parts of UP, etc., he would have given it away. That is Mr. Gandhi. Okay, Mike asks, if Catholicism is a barrier to progress, how do you explain the Jesuits? Good question, Mike. So who are these Jesuits? The Jesuits are, they are the scientists of the Catholic Church. So yes, the Catholic Church did realize that you need science in order to remain relevant in the world. They opposed science among the masses, but they did cultivate scientists. These were the Jesuit priests. And these priests did not do any actual scientific research. All they did was this. They went to foreign countries, especially the East. And they stole valuable knowledge from there. It is Jesuit priests who stole Indian algebra and trigonometry and calculus and they brought it to Europe. It is they who stole all the astronomical records that allowed Kepler to put forth his so-called three laws of planetary motion. It is the Jesuits who stole all of India's ancient knowledge which is now passed off as European knowledge and Western knowledge. The Jesuits were thieves. So yes, Jesuits allowed the Catholic Church to progress a great deal. So yes, they were not a barrier to progress for the Catholic Church. But they were agents of colonialism. They were the agents of destruction because they enabled the West to acquire through illicit means the knowledge of the East, which was then repurposed in destroying and colonizing the rest of the world. So they are part of this evil, which, and they are indirectly responsible for billions of deaths. So yes, they were not, they were not a barrier to progress for the West, but they were instrumental in the destruction of the East. And even today you have Jesuits who are active in India. Who's that fellow who died recently? Stan Swami or something. He was a Jesuit. They are still working for the destruction of India. So yes, Mike, you are right. They were not an impediment to progress for the West, but they were instrumental in the destruction of the East. So I think, you know, Mike, you need to stop glorifying evil and stop reveling in the evil that your ancestors ancestors have done. You need to accept the facts. I hope this, this answers your question, Mike. Okay, Shreya asks, my take on Brahmanism, could this be the real cause behind the moral decay of the, in the country, which eventually led to foreign invasions? 
I mean, what moral decay, Shreya? And what is Brahmanism? What exactly is Brahmanism? I have never heard of Brahmanism except in Marxist textbooks. There is no such thing as Brahmanism. There is something called Dharma in which you have these different schools of thought that I have explained in, in a different video. I suggest you look it up. It's called a five-minute crash course on Indian philosophy. So that is Dharma. These are the Dharmic schools of thought. There is no such thing as Brahmanism. It is one of the uh, new divisions of Indian society that the Marxists have created and they have brainwashed young people into believing in all this. And then they categorize the Brahmins as bad because the Brahmins were the ones who were interested with with, uh, with preserving and propagating the knowledge of India, the ancient wisdom and knowledge of India for thousands of years. And therefore, the ones who basically preserved and protected the knowledge, they are the ones who are being vilified today in order to destroy Hinduism from the roots. And therefore, they have created this new category of Brahmanism. And that's what you see all across Wikipedia and various other textbooks and books today. So there is no such thing as Brahmanism. And what moral decay are you referring to, Shreya? There is no moral decay. The moral decay which happened in India happened after the foreign invasions and occupation of India. So yes, today you have moral decay in India. Definitely. It is the consequence of the 1000, past 1000 years of humiliation and foreign occupation that India has undergone. So that is the moral decay. There was no moral decay before that. And there was no there is no such thing as Brahmanism. So we need to re-examine our history critically, not through the Western lens or the Marxist lens, but through the Indian lens, indigenous lens. So that is something that needs to be done. It's, it's a long path ahead. I don't blame Shreya for what she has said. I don't blame any of you for if you hold certain notions that have been put into your minds by our education system. The aim of India's education system is to divide, fragment and destroy India and to brainwash the masses and to make all of us hate ourselves and our ancestors and our culture so that India can be suitably socially and culturally re-engineered in a different way. So please understand this agenda. So to recap, there is no such thing as Brahmanism and all the moral decay that has come into India is a consequence of the past 1000 years of foreign occupation. It is the taint of these foreign cultures that has caused the moral decay in India. There is indeed moral decay. It needs to be addressed suitably. Grishma asks, do you think the spread of Ahimsa and the conversion of Ashoka into Buddhism paved the way for Turkic invasions? And also, why is why is Buddhism not a prevalent region in India, religion in India in modern times? Even in places like UP and Bihar, followers of Buddhism are very less. Okay, yeah, good question. So you see, Ahinsa or non-violence is not a central central tenet of only Buddhism. It is a central tenet of Dharma itself. Dharma does say that Ahinsa Paramo Dharma. Ahinsa is the greatest of, of Dharmas. It is the greatest morality, Ahinsa. But what does this really mean that Ahinsa is the Paramo Dharma? Does it mean that you will allow violence to occur and sit by and watch it? No. Ahinsa Paramo Dharma also means that you have to destroy a Dharma. 
you have to destroy all sources of violence if a barbaric invader invades your country and and uh, destroys people's lives etc it is your duty to take up arms and destroy the source of adharma and hinsa that is also ahimsa because your objective is to make the world a non violent place so you have to sometimes do it with weaponry with arms with violence lord krishna tried his best to prevent the war in mahabharat but at the end he urged exhorted arjuna that forget about your doubts and all that just do your duty your duty is that of a soldier of a warrior go and kill go and destroy adharma that's it and the same goes for buddhism it is a myth that buddhism says uh, you need to be passive and don't resist anything that's nonsense one of our greatest emperors was the great emperor kanishka who was a buddhist every single scholar of history considers kanishka to be a buddhist now let's examine mr kanishka's life and career one of our greatest emperors he conquered he spent his life conquering other territories and other countries his empire ranged from the caspian sea and the aral sea in the west in central asia it had the it encompassed the whole of afghanistan most of present day xinjiang present day china and much of india all the way to bangladesh and to the outskirts of of present day burma now he did not do this through non violence this great buddhist emperor he did it through active vigorous military conquest so where is the non violence here he was a buddhist and i can give you lots of other examples of buddhist kings and emperors who have engaged in warfare so this this idea that buddhism is a non violent religion it has sapped india's vitality etc that's nonsense buddhism is very much a part of hinduism i i will say this again and again buddhism is very much a part of hinduism it is not a separate religion so if hinduism is prevalent in india today it means buddhism is also prevalent in some form buddhism is one of the schools of thought of hinduism so why did buddhism decline as a school of thought it's because of, because of the turkic invasions they destroyed every trace of buddhism they were before they entered india they were destroying buddhism all across central asia they even wrote poems ugly poems about destroying statues of the, of the buddha and doing evil things to those statues vile disgusting things to, the, to those statues and then they did the same thing in india so they were specifically targeting the statues of the buddhas of the buddha and monasteries and temples of the buddha and they are the ones who destroyed the turks are the ones who destroyed buddhism stamped out buddhism from india and hinduism did survive which is a different different uh, manifestation of dharma right so today we call it with this foreign name hinduism it's just dharma buddhism is just another form of dharma and so is what we call hinduism today so the reason for buddhism's decline in india is the turkic invasions they specifically targeted everything that was buddhist in nature and secondly buddhism doesn't force you to be non completely non violent you can be violent you can resist a dharma you can destroy uh people who are violent and adharmic sudanshu asks why does china call india tianzhu excellent question sir very good question so what does tianzhu mean so the chinese the chinese name for india for a very long time has been tianzhu so the word tian in chinese means heaven okay 
it means heaven and the word chanju means it has a number of meanings one meaning is god the second meaning is heavenly master or the lord of heaven and another meaning is the center of heaven so so china looked upon india as a heavenly place as the god as the lord of heaven as the heavenly master or the center of heaven that is the chinese name for india the center of heaven the heavenly master today if you look at wikipedia they give you alternative theories that it is just the transliteration in the chinese form of the word sindhu or something or the other this is chinese revisionism because the chinese communist party is mortally afraid of of india's ancient influence cultural influence on china so they are trying to distort everything distort history and try to deny the fact that india is the basically the the cultural guru of china but this name this name that china has called india by for thousand for at least for almost 2000 years that tells you the extremely high regard in which chinese in which the chinese civilization regarded india as the center of heaven as the heavenly master excellent question sudanshu so yash asks if we really had a prevailing influence over paternal lineage then why in today's time we have a relatively inferior genetics compared to europeans what inferior genetics yash i fail to see any inferior genetics in india i think india has superior genetics compared to other people do do europeans have superior genetics to india i mean what do you mean by superior genetics i i don't see indians having inferior genetics to anybody physically intellectually culturally we are we are this we are superior i'm sorry i i i don't mean to sound chauvinistic or nationalistic or anything else but if you look at the past 10000 years of history which nation which civilization has dominated the dominated the world and surpassed the achievements of the world which civilization it is it is india this is a fact so in what way is india's genetics inferior to anybody i mean i are you saying indians are smaller weaker somehow i mean come on <laughs> so so i disagree with this uh, this is this is inc- inconsistent with the facts okay harsh asks what is my take on the records of jesus in india or the the, the credibility of these reports in uh, in text from the hemis buddhist monastery do you think it's possible he learned something from india i've heard this is also mentioned in yogananda paramahansa's an autobiography of a yogi should india leverage this to reconcile abrahamic religions with dharmic religions and you came to know about this from a documentary film called jesus in india by somebody called paul davids so there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that this uh, that mr jesus that this jesus jesus was ever in india there is no hist- historical evidence that jesus even existed in the first place until now even today the western world is spending billions of dollars every year trying to find actual physical evidence that jesus existed thus far it's all stories and tales there is no actual 
tangible, hard, historical or archaeological evidence that Mr. Jesus actually existed, right? Jesus Christ actually existed. So if there is no evidence that he actually existed, then how are we going to find evidence that he existed in India, that he ever came to India? I am not aware of any text from any monastery that claims that this person came to India. I did read the autobiography, autobiography of a yogi a few years ago. I have it lying somewhere, not here, but somewhere else. I have other book racks. So yeah, so I don't remember reading about that in the book. So my point is very simple. There is absolutely zero evidence that Jesus ever existed, firstly. And secondly, if he did exist, there is no evidence that he ever came to India. Not one single credible piece of evidence that he was ever in India. So this entire, I don't know, people, I know that people have made movies about this, which is why you're talking about it. So you are right. And it's a good question that you're raising. But whoever makes these movies, I mean, they, 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 they have no facts to base the movie on. Just stories and tales. Well, stories and tales, I can bring you lots of stories and tales of all kinds. But that does not constitute actual historical evidence, right? So to answer your question in short, no, there is zero evidence that Jesus existed or ever, ever came to India. That's it. Dungar Singh Chauhan asks, our government wants to break the Ramasetu bridge so that, so that ships that come from Europe don't have to go through Sri Lankan ports and go directly to other places. And this will increase the revenue from ports in Tamil Nadu and Kerala. What's my view about this? It sounds paradoxical to the idea of our cultural heritage. This uh, project is called Setu Samudram or something. Various governments have tried to go ahead with this project by destroying the Ramasetu bridge. It does make, if, if, if it were to be feasible from an engineering perspective, then it would definitely allow ships to uh, go quicker, go faster, instead of having to cross Sri Lanka all the way. But the fact is that this is one of our most important pieces of cultural and civilizational heritage. It is priceless beyond any, it has no value, it is in, invaluable. We cannot destroy this ancient heritage of ours for the sake of some money. So I am completely against this. I would say that no government should dare to try and touch this bridge. I know that the local governments in Tamil Nadu, in Kerala, etc., which are very virulently Hindu-phobic, they are trying, they, they are pressing the central government to go ahead and destroy this bridge. I hope that sense will prevail in the central government and they will not allow this to happen. This can never this monument can never be touched. This is our priceless ancient heritage that has been handed on from our ancestors for thousands of years. We cannot destroy this. What needs to be done is that there needs to be a proper investigation, a proper historical archaeological investigation on the structure and the actual dating should be done, how old this is. And we need a proper detailed report about when this was constructed and the circumstances of the construction and all that. And there should be documentaries and all that about that. So instead of destroying it, we need to actually document and preserve this structure. Okay, Shriyansh asks, why are people portrayed as poor in the Ramayana on TV? 
when there was a great deal of prosperity during the time of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana? Excellent question. I mean, come on. If you look at uh, various depictions of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, they show people who are poor, people who are celebrating that Rama has come, has become the king, etc. or whatever. And they show people, people in poverty, which is so stupid because there was no poverty in India so many thousands of years ago. Poverty is a very recent phenomenon in India. It is a consequence of the past 1000 years of foreign occupation. And that's what's got, got into our psyche. That India has always been a poor country, poor country. Because all your teachers, professors, textbooks, they will keep talking about India as a poor country. And the media keeps talking about India as a poor country. So Indians have this, this mindset that India is a poor country. India has always been poor. India was never poor. India was the most prosperous country in the history of the world for most part of, the, of history, for thousands of years. India accounted for at least one third of the entire world's GDP for the almost the most of the past 2000 years. And before that, it, it could very well have been more than half the world's GDP. That's how prosperous India was. So these people who make these television serials, etc., they have no idea about history. I don't blame them for it. Some of them I do blame. Because Bollywood does deliberately mangle and distort our history. But yes, in some cases, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. They have grown up thinking that India has always been poor. And that's why they depict India in such ways in the audiovisual media. And another thing I can talk about is that if you look at the artistic depictions of ancient Harappa Mohenjo-Daro, they are depicted as yellow or brown or dry. The entire landscape is dry and brown because today this region is quite dry and brown. But the fact is that when Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro, etc. were big cities, prosperous cities, at that time, the Indian monsoon was much more intense than it is today. And the entire Saptasindhu region was lush green. So let me show you what the kind of depictions you have. Hang on. So here is one artistic depiction of, of one of these cities. Can you see how it is? It's all yellow and brown. Again here, all yellow and brown. There's no greenery at all. Here you have it. Here you have it. Again, not a single leaf. Nothing. So this is the kind of mindset we have in India that uh, that that everything was everything must have been in the past the way it is today. It is not so. India has changed a lot in the past thousand years. India has deteriorated in the past one thousand years. India was way greater. So we have to reconnect with who we really are. And the key to that is the education system. Okay, Aditi asks, if Mr. Gandhi was a huge supporter of the British, like I say, why did he lead movements like the Dandi movement, which opposed the British government? And why was he constantly put into jail by the British? Was this too a part of their plan? So tell me, in what way did, the, did this Dandi movement hurt the British Empire. How did it do it? Today, if I take a candle march, I, I grab a bunch of people, some foolish people who think I'm a god. I take out a candlelight march and go to some place like, uh, like uh, in the center of Delhi or whatever. Will it hurt the government in any way if I want to, if I want to protest? No. So the Dandi march did not do any harm economically or otherwise to the government, to the, to the British occupiers of India. So that's one example. It's a very symbolic thing. The media covered it a lot 
foreign media indian media and they portrayed him as a great uh, opponent of the british this non violent opponent but it did not cost the british anything and the fact that he was constantly put into jail by the british have you seen the jails that he was in very comfortable jails what about people like savarkar what happened what kind of jails were they put in they were thrown all the way into the andamans and kalapani do you know the conditions there it was daily physical torture so many indian kings who opposed the british they were thrown into these jails they died in these jails we don't even know what happened to their body did mr gandhi have to go through any of that this supposed jailing of mr gandhi was just a period of vacation for him and so the same goes for mr nehru these people were on with the british plan with the british agenda and therefore they were treated with kid gloves it is the people and and yet you had thousands of people dying every day in british jails so how come mr gandhi did not die thousands of indians were dying in british jails every every day every every week every month those were the real jails there was real torture there there were inhuman conditions in those in those jails mr gandhi lived in five star luxury in those jails in those in, in the jails that he was put in and so did mr nehru mr nehru wrote an entire book in jail can you imagine a regular indian person protesting against the british who goes to jail would he ever be able to write a book no so this is all this is all show you know this is all uh, it's all show business mr gandhi was in jail sure he did protest sure it was all tokenism the protests were token were tokenism the jailings were tokenism he was never made uncomfortable he was not ever tortured he was never deprived of food he was never deprived of sleep he was never deprived of clothing he was never hanged up hung upside down he was never uh, thrashed with lathis come on come on mr gandhi <laughs> so that is the fact of of mr gandhi all right i hope i have answered this question satisfactorily let's take a few live questions now okay i get this question lots of times every day i do not know about mr soheldev about our great king soheldev very much i have not studied his career in detail i will do it in the future and when i am satisfactorily prepared and i have enough knowledge about this then i will speak about it as of today i do not know much about raja suheldev i know that amish tripathi has written a very interesting novel about this i have not read it myself there are so many books i haven't read yet but i personally do not know much as of today as of now about king suheldev i will read about him study about him and in the future i'll talk about it yes sir siddharth instagram look it takes time to do all this so i i i don't have that much time as of today hopefully in the future i may put some put something on instagram right now i'm completely inactive on instagram maybe in the future okay uh, rajiv dikshit in one of his lectures said that janagana mana was written for king george the 5th by by rabindranath tagore is that true well that's what i have also heard 
So Janagana Mana Adhinayaka Jayahe. So when Mr. Tagore wrote this poem, who was the Adhinayak of India? That's the only question we have to ask ourselves. Who was the ruler of India? It was indeed King George V. Was there some other Adhinayak that he was referring to? If there was somebody else he was referring to, he should have clarified it and put the name of that Adhinayak in that, in that uh, song or poem. He did not. And therefore this question remains. And it is likely apparently that it may have been King George V whom Mr. Tagore was referring to. It is indeed possible because I don't see any other ruler of India, the whole of India at that time. So yes, good question. Yes, yes, yes. I get this question 50 times a day. I have, I have. Thank you. <laughs> Akshay asks, the way Christianity is spreading in the South and their disdain towards Northern languages, people, etc. Do you think North and South will always be at constant war in the future as well? Yes. India is being culturally re-engineered right now. Billions of dollars of foreign money, is, uh, foreign money is pouring into India with the specific stated aim of Christianizing India. And they are targeting the people who are in poverty because of the consequences of 1000 years of foreign occupation. So those are the easiest people to convert. The Chinese used to call them rice Christians because the same strategy was used in China. They would convert Chinese, poor Chinese for in exchange for a bag of rice. So it is on record, you can look it up online. The Chinese called those people rice Christians. And that is being done in India today. This is a deliberate, well thought out, long term plan of social re-engineering of India, of cultural re-engineering of India. And these people, these missionaries, they come to India on tourist visas. They violate visa conditions. And the Indian government knows about this. And the Indian government does nothing about this. So I don't blame anybody. I blame the government of India which does nothing, which knows about this. It is turning a blind eye towards this evil plan to socially and culturally re-engineer India. What is the government doing, I ask? Why are they doing nothing about this? Isn't the uh, cultural integrity of India part of the national interest or not? Are they not in charge of preserving the cultural integrity of India? How can they allow India's culture to be engineered by foreigners? So this is a failure of the government of India. There is a theory that India, Africa and Korea were connected through a now drowned land called Lemuria. Is it for real? See, if a piece, if a, if a piece of land goes under the sea, if it drowns, you will still see it when you scan the ocean. You will see there was something there which went down. And if you look at the uh, Indian Ocean region, you see no traces of any such sunken land or island or continent. There's nothing absolutely at all. Absolutely nothing at all. And therefore, this theory is inconsistent with the factual evidence that we have. So unfortunately, there is no such land. I don't know where this na name called Lemuria came from. It is not an Indian name. It is clearly some foreign theory. But this theory is false, unfortunately.
Saurav asks, why was India called a paradise for KGF, KGB agents? It's KGB. The KGB was the is the was the intelligence agency of the USSR. Well, India was a satellite state, a puppet of the USSR in the 20th century, from the time of Mr. Nehru and during later governments as well. So as India was a satellite state of the USSR, obviously there were many KGB agents in India, many of whom were Indians, many of whom were in the government, allegedly. So that's why India was called a paradise for KGB agents. Krishna asks, why has any single temple not been found in the Indus Valley Civilization? Please answer my question. They have found temples, they have found Shivalingas, they have found plenty of religious symbology. What they have not found is palaces. That's what they have not found. Temples they have found. They have found very ancient temples. They have found lots of Shivalingas as well. So So there are no grand temples, yes, but there are small temples. There are no grand temples on large scales. So it looks like religion, spirituality, all that was a personal thing. Everybody did that at home or whatever, or in small temples. And the greatest buildings were the public buildings, like the public bath or the assembly hall, etc. But there were no palaces. That tells you something about the system of governance. It means it was most likely a form of democracy, where the people were the supreme power, not any king. Okay, let me find some other interesting questions. Please give me a minute. Let me try and find something interesting. Dave asks, can you tell us something interesting about the Northeast state history like Nagaland, Mizoram, Manipur, etc. I do not know much about Mizoram because I haven't studied that the history of that very small state. In my opinion, the most interesting state in the Northeast of India is Manipur. In my personal opinion, I'm sure there are other interesting states, okay, but I know more about Manipur, of course. So the thing is that Manipur has a history that goes back at least 2,000 years, most likely three, three and a half thousand years. Their chronicle of kings, their list of kings, which is called the Chaitharal Kumbhava, that goes back minimum 2,000 years. And there is this great fortress in the city of Imphal, which is called the Kangla Fortress, which is again more than 2,000 years old. So it's a very ancient kingdom. It's almost like a civilization. They had their own culture, they had their own language, they had their own script of writing, etc. So it's a very interesting place. And uh, the Manipur kings sometimes even conquered Burma. They even conquered Rangoon. One of the Manipuri kings conquered parts of present-day Yunnan province of China. And some of them conquered parts of Assam, parts of Tripura, etc. So it was a very powerful and significant kingdom. Today it is reduced to a very small state. It is like half taken over by the Nagas, etc. It is almost 50% Christianized. So it has seen a great deal of decline after the after India's independence. So that's 
maybe one interesting fact about northeast india it's a very very interesting place the whole of the northeast india very beautiful place very interesting very beautiful and diverse culture indigenous culture not the foreign culture that's there now but very interesting and it's something that deserves more attention and and uh, yeah people should visit the place you know when the prevailing situation is over <laughs> so yeah i would encourage everyone to go and visit the northeast very nice place okay let me take two more questions and then we will be done for today brutus asks you told me you'll get back to me about semiramis and her war against india so yes this uh, this queen called semiramis she was a mesopotamian babylonian queen i think uh she was in power about 3 and a half or 4000 years ago i still haven't read up about her she did invade she tried to invade india and one of the later vedic kings of india <clears throat> excuse me he met her army in battle and defeated them so that is in short the story of semiramis and her war against india <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> so she, the significance of this queen is that she was the first female monarch in that region the first significant female monarch and she is recorded in various texts and various inscriptions and she tried to invade india which was one step too far for her and she was defeated i still need to read up a bit more about this and when i am done i will give you more details about this <clears throat> excuse me yes mitrokin archive about the kgb activities in india yes so that is a good source of information about the kgb's activities in india during the 1960s 70s 80s etc when india was part of the soviet satellite states yogesh asks did women in ancient india have property rights so if a woman could become the queen would she not own the entire kingdom women had all the rights including property rights women actually had sometimes even more rights than men they they definitely got more respect than men and like i've said many of the verses of the rigveda were authored by female poets show me any cultural religious tradition in the world where the holiest of the books is to a great extent authored by multiple women or even a single woman show me any such tradition in the world there's none only india okay one more question for today what are my views about saint francis xavier's relics in, in goa i haven't really bothered to look to look into this matter because i have no interest in this man francis xavier was not a saint he was a monster he brought this spanish inquisition into india and the spanish inquisition basically burnt hundreds and thousands of hindus to death burnt them alive for not practicing christianity it was a brutal oppressive uh religious uh it was religious terrorism of the most brutal kind so francis xavier 
his only aim was to christianize india so he introduced the spanish inquisition he brought it into india and it caused the deaths of thousands or may, maybe tens of thousands of indians and it, it forcibly christianized parts of western india specifically goa so he was no saint he was a monster that's what francis xavier was we need to we need to address the facts as what they are it is a fact that no one can deny, deny that he brought the spanish inquisition into india it is a fact that nobody can deny that the spanish inquisition was religious terrorism it is a fact that nobody can deny that indians who became christians were christianized by force the only option was convert or die so these are the facts about francis xavier and we need to speak about them we need to state the facts for what they are all right my friends this brings us to an end of this episode thank you very much for all your questions thank you for participating and i would like to specifically thank those of you who have become members and i would like to thank siddhant singh and lalit mishra for for being uh, in the top two tiers of membership one of the perks is that i have to i am going to thank all of you in the credit credits of every every episode so thank you very much thank you to everybody and i will see you next week next week there are going to be some changes uh, some things need to keep evolving so i will announce that in a day or two so we will have some new kinds of discussions next week so i will let you know very soon thank you everybody thank you for participating thank you for your questions thank you for your viewership i will see you in the next episode bye